I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Today, we'll examine the Assembly and Petition Clauses of the First Amendment, which state, quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Joining me to discuss this fascinating part of the Constitution are two leading First Amendment scholars who wrote about the Assembly and Petition Clauses for the National Constitution Center's wonderful new interactive constitution, which I want you to check out at constitutioncenter.org. I am thrilled to report that only three months after it launched, the interactive constitution has now attracted more than two million unique visitors, uh, which is just wonderful news. And I'm also excited to share that Podbeam has just named this We the People podcast number nine out of 120,000 podcasts. So we thank you, our wonderful loyal listeners, for joining us for these great programs of education and debate. Bert Newborn is the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties and founding legal director of the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. And John Anazu is an associate professor of law and associate professor of political science at the Washington University School of Law. Bert, John, thank you so much for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Wonderful. John, let's jump right in. You and Bert both wrote a common statement about the core meaning of the Assembly Clause for the Interactive Constitution. Tell me what you agreed that the original understanding and textual meaning of the Assembly Clause is. Thanks, Jeff. I think that one of the most interesting and uh, apparent points of agreement that Bert and I share is is just the the basic observation that assembly and petition are two distinct rights. That's something that's been lost in recent constitutional history. It, the, the clause has for decades been interpreted as allowing only assembly in order to petition the government. And Bert and I have both uh, come to the conclusion that that's not correct, that there is a separate and distinct assembly clause uh, and there's a separate petition clause. And then another area of agreement that we share is, is what is the scope of assembly? And part of detaching assembly from petition makes us see that assembly itself is more capacious than just a political right. It's not just a right that allows a group to come together for political purposes, but it extends to all kinds of groups, to religious groups, to social groups, to groups that are inchoate and, and may not know what they're about yet. So that is a two key, both, both textualist, originalist, but also historically grounded understandings of assembly that weren't apparent in recent scholarship for quite some time. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Bert, I know that you and John agreed about much, but you also have a very interesting, distinctive take on the First Amendment. You think that all 45 words uh, unite and build together. Tell me what you think that the yeah, core sure. meaning of the position clause was. Uh, I don't want to put words in John's mouth, but I actually found working with him on this uh, quite refreshing and delightful because his approach to text um, uh, is uh, quite you know, uh, uh, close to mine, I think. And uh, um, it's, uh, we forget sometimes that I think that the political spectrum uh, is more, um, certainly among libertarians, but the political spectrum is more accurately described as a circle 
than it is as a line where left libertarians and right libertarians at the the end of the circle are much closer to each other than either of us are to the folks in the middle who are um, much more comfortable with very, very broad uh, regulatory governmental power. Um, And it's an example of this because I think uh, my my take on the First Amendment is that uh, we've, we've forgotten that it consists of both six clauses and 45 words that are integrated. I mean, it wasn't as though the founders threw a pot of ink at the wall and let the splatter decide what the order of the rights and the order of the words were. One of the geniuses of the Bill of Rights uh, is how magnificently uh, organized they are. Madison was an organizational genius. Um, And um, uh, the very fact that we think assembly and petition, which close, they are the four, they are the fifth and sixth clauses in the First Amendment. Um, they close the First Amendment with two separate rights, um, and both John and I agree that assembly and petition are separate rights. That assembly is a kind of guarantee of be, being able to act as collective action. That that you don't have to simply be an island of, of uh, individualism, but that you can um, um, uh, join with your with your with your uh, fellow citizens and fellow um, uh, inhabitants uh, to advance things. And that petition means something very different than that. Uh, but I actually even go further than that, and I, I, I hope John does too. And that's that uh, uh, well, the four clauses that go before it: the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the Speech Clause, and the, spread, and the Press Clause, are all also. Um, separate and individual rights that were put in there by the founders because they recognized that they were fundamental building blocks of the society that they wanted to uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, have come to fruition. Um, And that the two religion clauses, for example, establishment and free exercise, protect the the interior um, speak of, of precincts of the human mind, the conscience, the free conscience, without which you can't be a free person. There's no way you can have a democracy. There's no way you can uh, engage in self-government. If at the same time, you're oppressed in your own conscience, you can't govern yourself and govern others if you haven't got the freedom to think for yourself. And then the speech clause kicks in that says, once you have a free mind, the speech clause allows you then to articulate your ideas freely in the society, and the press clause guarantees that those ideas will be disseminated in a mass way. Um, The assembly clause then kicks in and allows people to organize around the ideas. And the petition clause ends the First Amendment by saying you can then take the ideas and bring them to the government and demand that they put them into effect. Uh, So it's an integrated whole. Uh, And it was great fun working with John on it, seeing how we sort of shared uh, much of that approach. Uh, wonderful. Well, John, I uh, wonder if you could uh, tell us, you've talked about the assembly uh, clause. Um, tell us about the petition clause. What does the Constitution mean when it talks about a redress of grievances? Are these only grievances that refer to public interest, or do they also include uh, private interests? What was the original meaning there? Well, here I'm, I'm less certain than I am about assembly, and what I like about what Bert has done is to remind us not only how these are distinct rights, but how they might work together. And so we certainly have, at the framing and and early American history, examples of people and actual groups assembling in order to petition. And we have petitions being drawn, and and there are fascinating cases of, uh, in in the South, petitions of citizen groups against uh, various state governments. And so we have an active 
history in which this happens, it does seem to be, in the petition context, more confined to a political redress of grievances. I think we know today even less about what petition means than we do about assembly. And one of the really interesting questions uh, is not, not as much as where we were, but where we're going with petition. And so when we think about uh, online petitions and those sorts of things, how do they function within the framework of the First Amendment? And there, I think right now I have more questions than I do answers. Fascinating. Well, Bert, you write in your separate statement that under existing law, the petition for redresser of grievances clause is a dead letter, while the Supreme Court's ruled the petition clause adds nothing to a free speech claim the founders must have believed otherwise. Uh, tell us, how has current doctrine about the assembly and petition clause diverged from what you believe its textual meaning is? Well, I characterize uh, what the Supreme Court has done to both the petition and the press clause um, as a kind of speech imperialism. They've, they've taken the speech clause uh, and vigorously um, um, enforced it, as they should. Um, but what they've essentially done is said that, this, that the speech clause does all the heavy lifting leaving very little for the press clause to do and almost nothing for the petition clause to do. They've essentially construed the petition clause um, as simply uh, uh, a species, a kind of exercise of speech uh, with exactly the same analysis that you would use if it were a speech clause. Um, and if that's actually what the founders wanted, then you wonder why they spent the ink putting in a, a, a press clause and putting in a petition clause uh, if the speech clause was going to do everything that those two clauses do, and if those two clauses don't advance or change the speech analysis at all. Um, John is right that um, uh, at the time of the founding, and for at least 50 to 75 years uh, after that, the petition clause was a vibrant part of American political life. Uh, I mean, one of the great stories, one of the great moral stories um, of the period before the Civil War um, uh, was, was the effort by John Quincy Adams. After Adams um, was president um, and was defeated for re-election, he then ran for the House uh, and served in the House for Massachusetts for a long time and was one of the country's great anti-slavery voices. Um, and Adams used the petition clause uh, to introduce on the floor of the House a series of petitions demanding some sort of redress from the moral um, uh, 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 impediment to slavery. And um, one day, he actually introduced a petition by slaves um, uh, into the floor of the uh, House, uh, precipitating what was almost a brawl. Um, um, uh, but he kept the issue alive using the petition clause um, as his method for doing it. In fact, uh, Congress actually passed something called a gag rule, which forbade him, it was probably a violation both of the petition clause and the free speech clause, from introducing petitions on slavery uh, for a long period of time until finally Congress itself in the 1840s uh, reversed the gag rule uh, and allowed the petitions to go forward again. But the petition clause, I think, the modern reading of the petition clause, um, in a world in which um, our officials have become further and further uh, um, distanced from us, in a gerrymandered world where you know who's going to win the election, where, uh, where you don't have a, uh, a close relationship with your legislator anymore, um, um, where uh, anonymous interests that you don't even know uh, are existing as strong lobbying and uh, uh, financing in ways that leave an ordinary American feeling that, uh, that you have very little personal influence in uh, what your government does. The petition clause is the antidote for that. The petition clause says, at the end of the day, everybody 
as the right to petition for redress of grievances. And if you take the clause seriously, um, it is a mechanism that forces the government to come to grips with the problems that the, that the citizenry feel have not been adequately dealt with by the society. And you can't sweep it under the rug, and you can't refuse to com- comply with it. I think deep down, here I think um, uh, many people would not agree with me, but I think deep down I can find in the petition clause a right to vote. It's one of the mysteries of the Constitution, that one of the great democratic charters um, uh, of, of uh, human history doesn't have a provision in it. Uh, for protecting the right to vote. Um, and we go through contortions trying to find it in the Equal Protection Clause, trying to find it in other places. I think the place where the right to vote exists is the petition clause. The, the, the ultimate petition is to go to the ballot box and turn the rascals out. Um, but you don't have to go that far. You wouldn't necessarily have to say that the petition clause has the right to vote. To simply say that the petition clause is an important component of the Bill of Rights, an important component of the First Amendment, that guarantees that individual voices will be heard by the legislature and the executive in the administration of the law. Great. Uh, well, I want to return to assembly in a moment, but 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 John, I need to ask you, do you agree with Bert that the petition clause could include a right to vote? And do you agree with the Supreme Court, which held in the Minnesota Board for Community Colleges and Knight case in 1984, that it's not necessary for the government to respond to grievances? Uh, do you believe that the right to petition includes a right to receive a response by the government? Uh, two great questions. I'm not sure I share Bert's conclusion about the right to vote possibly embedded in the right to petition. And I I think the court might be right in terms of uh, just a, uh, as a matter of administration uh, whether there's a right to a response. But what I do like quite a bit about Bert's framing uh, is his use of the word speech imperialism. And I think that helpfully focuses us on some points of agreement, but also on some normative questions underlying the First Amendment that have been really obscured by the focus on speech. So like Bert, I, I, speech is very important. It's a very important clause. But by focusing on speech alone and ignoring uh, the symbolic and substantive purposes of both petition and assembly and the other clauses, I think we lose a couple of things. One of them, we lose the broader focus on the First Amendment uh, as a a means to dissent, and speech can be co-opted for purposes other than dissent, but assembly and petition put us more squarely in the realm of dissent. And then the other area that we brushed upon uh, a little so far is is the nature of collective action that comes uh, through other rights in the First Amendment, assembly being one of them, but isn't necessarily embedded in the speech right. And here, I think, a focus and a push toward an individualized understanding of these rights uh, exclusively makes us uh, miss the, the power and the importance of collective action as well. Great. Well, that uh, leads us back to the assembly right. Um, uh, Bert, uh, John has written in a pathbreaking article, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, and in his subsequent book, Liberty's Refuge, that freedom of assembly has been forgotten. He says that it's been replaced by the far weaker freedom of association that is atextual and ahistorical and neglects the collective aspects of freedom of assembly. Uh, tell us whether you agree and, and how you think current doctrine diverges from what John claims the original purpose of the text was. Well, I both agree and disagree with John. I agree completely 
that uh, the watered-down version of freedom of assembly that we have now uh, is a far cry from what the uh, both, uh, I think, respect for its role in the text uh, and the, the founders' understanding. Um, what the Supreme Court does now, just uh, as a kind of, uh, this is an oversimplification, of course, but what the Supreme Court tends to do is to treat assembly which is people getting together uh, collectively, um, usually to advance an idea, but it could be to um, uh, engage in other types of activity as well. Um, um, uh, it's the physical gathering of human beings. That's how I view assembly. Um, the, they view the physical gathering of human beings as a kind of exercise of speech, as a form of expression, a demonstration being the classic idea or a political parade or picket line. Um, uh, the, the individuals gather, um, and therefore they've assembled. And this is a kind of speech, but it's a kind of speech minus, because it's speech that carries with it the risk of the disturbance of public order. Um, uh, no two things can occupy the same space at the same time. So if you have a, an assembly of persons in the middle of the street, it means you block the cars. Uh, or, um, uh, and uh, when you have physical assemblies like this in volatile situations, the chances of some form of uh, um, uh, improper behavior become at least uh, magnified. And so what they do is they treat it like speech, but they treat it like a kind of disfavored speech that can relatively easily be defeated uh, by a plausible government explanation for why they didn't want to allow it. Um, if you think about the fate, for example, uh, of uh, recent efforts to use the assembly uh, idea as a way of advancing an idea, Occupy Wall Street becomes the uh, classic example of it. Uh, these were people who wished to use body rhetoric to, to assemble and by assembling together um, to attempt to express an idea. And, of course, the court is correct in saying that that is a kind of speech, but it's a special kind of speech. It's a special kind of speech that's available to poor people because it doesn't cost anything. If you're willing to use sweat equity to assemble, um, uh, then you don't have to buy time on the, on, on, on the television channel. Um, it's, it, there's, there's no price tag to it. Um, and so it is, it, is, it is, in some sense, poor people's um, collective action, but it, can all, but it isn't only poor people. It's, it is a, uh, a form of collective action. Um, and the, the doctrine is so watered down now that de facto uh, power about whether to allow assembly or not um, is vested in the local police. Um, now, there are rules to try to control that. They, have, they can't act with improper motive. They have to treat people equally. I mean, there are uh, efforts at seeing to it that the discretion is controlled. But in the end, it is a, it is a weakened shadow uh, of what a genuine right of assembly would be. Now, I acknowledge immediately that there are public order issues that have to be dealt with here. Uh, but what we've done is, I think, tilt totally toward the public order. Uh, and away from the um, strong protection of collective um, activity uh, that the Assembly Clause entails. Thank you so much. John, tell us more about your path-breaking uh, arguments in Liberty's Refuge. How has the freedom of Assembly been forgotten, um, and how has the Court wrongly interpreted it, in your view, in ways that diverge from the text and original understanding? I think one of the most interesting developments was in the 1950s when the Supreme Court, for the first time, and really uh, somewhat out of the blue, recognized a distinct constitutional right to association. 
And when we look back at the early cases, NAACP against Alabama being the key one, the earliest arguments in support of this new right of association are drawing from both the speech and assembly clauses. And I think theoretically, if we understood association to represent the emphases and values of both of those clauses together, it might have developed with more teeth and traction. Unfortunately, what happened is the court subsequently revisited the doctrine of association and without much of a theoretical or historical framework for that right, uh, compartmentalized it into two distinct rights, intimate association and expressive association. And today, fast forward 50 years, expressive association does almost all of the work in this area of the law. And one of my problems with the idea of expressive association, the, idea, uh, the notion that we protect groups when they come together only insofar as they are expressing a coherent message and for the purposes of that expression, is that we lose sight of the kinds of groups that might be non-expressive or, as I sometimes say, pre-political in all kinds of ways. And so sometimes the most important political or religious or social action is in the spaces that precede the actual public manifestation of a group in informal settings and interactions, when ideas are generated and relationships are formed. And when we cut past all of that and focus only on the outward expressive association, the doctrine can almost be vulnerable to a kind of prior restraints analysis where we allow sometimes government to intervene and to move in before we even have the action manifested. And so we have the subversion of expression before it even is, is generated publicly. And that's a, that's a real problem for a democratic uh, view of society. Wonderful. Well, this uh, claim that activity has to be expressive in order to be protected assembly uh, comes to a fore in a case that the Supreme Court is about to hear arguments in, and it's called Heffernan against Patterson, New Jersey. And uh, to give the facts briefly, Jeff Jeffrey Heffernan is a police officer from the city of Patterson. A fellow officer sees him getting a campaign sign for a former police chief who's running against the incumbent mayor. That officer reports him to the police chief. The supervisor confronts him. He says he's just a friend of the candidate. He wasn't politically motivated. He couldn't even vote in the city. He was actually picking up the sign on behalf of his bedridden mother. He was demoted uh, because his actions were considered to be his own overt involvement in political activities, and he claims his pay was reduced as a result. Bert, can you tell us what the uh, lower courts held and, and what the constitutional question that the Supreme Court's going to have to confront is? Well, the lower court um, um, took a very narrow uh, approach to the protection, and the Supreme Court is going to have to be is going to be confronted with uh, uh, essentially something very close to what John was uh, concerned about, and that is um, to what extent uh, when someone like a police officer um, um, is, is wishes to. Um, engage in some form of collective behavior. I mean, let's assume he was involved uh, remotely in carrying a campaign sign or something like that. Um, um, to what extent can the state punish him um, for engaging in what is perfectly permissible collective behavior, whether you call it assembly or association? Um, um, and, and that will, I think, be the, the fundamental analysis, uh, the fundamental issue in the court. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, what John's right that uh, in 1958, when Justice Harlan discovered freedom of association as the seventh 
idea in the First Amendment. We have six textual ideas, and then uh, uh, Justice Harlan discovers the seventh non-textual idea. He calls it association. I actually think that it was beneficial that he did it, because um, to the extent that assembly requires some sort of physical union, physical gathering of individuals, um, modern life has um, uh, stripped away the need necessarily to get in the same room with someone in order to engage in collective action. Um, Forms of communication now allow us to engage in collective action in ways that would uh, amaze um, the founders, and whose idea of collective action was essentially a physical one. Um, um, and so I think association is important to recognize that you can associate, that you, could, you are entitled to have strong protection about your collective behavior, even when it doesn't involve physical gathering, when it involves only meetings of the mind or uh, some sort of virtual um, gathering. Um, uh, and those virtual gatherings should be protected as well. My hope is that the Supreme Court uses the Heffernan case um, as a way to say that um, regardless of the facts of the case, if, if you believe the, the police officer, he wasn't involved in anything um, other than doing a favor for a, a friend. Um, but let's assume he was involved in some form of collective activity. Um, that collective activity should be protected against government retribution in the absence of some showing of a very, very important need to intervene. Um, and uh, the record in Heffernan is just completely uh, void on that. So my hope is that they use it as an easy case um, to make some good um, association and assembly law. Uh, John, what is your view of Heffernan? Uh, the city says that a political motivation for an adverse action is a necessary condition for a petitioner's claim, but is not sufficient. In other words, they say because the city, they were wrong about uh, the officer. They thought he was engaging in political activity, but in fact he wasn't. Therefore, they can fire him for any reason. And they're basically saying the fact that they were wrong means that he's not allowed to challenge uh, the fact that all they, they, they were trying to fire him for his political activity, but were wrong because he wasn't, in fact, politically motivated. Um, am, I, am I missing something, or is that a, a kind of a peculiar claim? No, I think it's really peculiar. It's a, it's a bizarre kind of formalism where the city's claim is there was no speech and there was no association, and therefore there's no violation. But the, the fundamental uh, trigger here was that the, the government misinterpreted the expressive political and relational activity of the officer. And, and so to me, it's almost a paradigmatic example of why we need to protect these rights so strongly that we have the risk of not only governments waiting to regulate, but the possibility of government misinterpretation. And when we think about the, the, the wide swath of political and religious expression we have in our country, the likelihood of government misinterpreting uh, what the activity is is quite high. And this actually ties back to, I think, one of Bert's earlier points, that in the physical manifestations of protests and assembly, it's quite often the case that the expression might look outwardly threatening or outwardly violent or outwardly offensive or weird uh, in a situation where it might not actually be. And so to give government a pass just because it misconstrued what the activity was seems exactly wrong to me in a First Amendment context. Bert, what should the, uh, a court focus on in these retaliation cases? The employer's perception, the employee's intent, or, or neither? Is it, is it enough that, that the, the guy was uh, simply uh, assembling to uh, protect him? Well, I mean, I think, this is Bert speaking, I, I think that um, every time the government 
um, imposes a kind of subject, uh, the Supreme Court imposes a kind of subjective requirement that you have to prove that the government was acting with a bad motive or some, uh, in order to protect the Constitution. They open up a loophole in the Constitution. It's so hard to prove what the government is thinking. I mean, the, the, the idea of the government thinking at all, um, and actually, uh, maybe the, that's the problem. It doesn't think. But, uh, but, the, but the idea of, 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 of deciding which um, agent in the government uh, is the person whose mind you're trying to get into, and then trying to get into that mind and make prove it, makes, makes it very, very difficult to, to, to enforce the Constitution. I mean, there are two examples, for example. Um, in the religion clauses, Justice Scalia, in one of his earliest opinions, said that the free exercise clause, which is an enormously important protection of human liberty and human dignity, that the free exercise clause doesn't apply um, in the absence of, a, of, of, of an intentional interference with religious freedom by the government. So if the government just doesn't, just runs over somebody's religion without realizing they're doing it or not caring much about it, but not intending to do it, then you haven't violated the free exercise clause. Well, that just seems to me terrible. Um, it, you know, if, if your conscience is crushed by what the government is doing, it shouldn't make a difference whether the government intended to crush your conscience or didn't intend to crush your conscience. Um, the religious conscience has been violated, um, and it ought to be uh, protected um, under the, the, the uh, free exercise clause. Similarly, when people try to argue um, racial discrimination claims based on either the 14th or 15th Amendments, the Supreme Court requires um, the challenger to prove that the government was intentionally violating discriminating on the basis of race. Not that it was recklessly doing it, not that it was negligently doing it, but that it actually intentionally did it. That allows bad people, and I'll call them bad people, to hide their, what they're really doing um, by claiming they're, they're doing it for one reason, uh, when they know that it is virtually impossible to disprove that. Um, and so I hope, I really hope, that they don't use this case to open up yet a third area where in order to enforce important provisions of the Constitution, you have to prove bad intent by the government um, when that is such a difficult thing to do. Uh, John, um, well, first of all, just to clarify the facts, is this police officer marching with other uh, police officers and he says he's doing so for non-political reasons? And how do you think that the court should resolve the case? So he's not with other folks. He's just spotted with the sign, and, and the inference that his bosses make is that the sign ties him associationally to other parties. And so here, this is a nice example of Bert's point, that sometimes the associations are not physical manifestations, but they're, they're inferences, sometimes they're virtual, and that we have to have the capacity to protect those as well. And one, one place where I might disagree with Bird is I think the resources uh, are there in the assembly clause to do just that, that we don't really need a separate right of association. But whether it's through the doctrine of association or a return to the assembly clause, I think it seems clear here that, that the court needs to protect this kind of activity. It's core political activity. It, it involves and invokes associational rights and the right to be with others. And it's, a, it's an abuse of power in response to that and uh, constitutional liberty. But just so I understand your position, he says it wasn't core political activity because he was just picking it up for his mother. So how is it core political activity? It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action 
taken based on a misperception of what should be protected as core political activity. I see. So, um, so the fact that they were motivated by a desire to discriminate on the basis of pol- political activity makes it a core assembly claim. I think so. Or, or maybe to put it differently, I would I would want to construe the assembly clause as broad enough to protect both intentional and misperceived activity that is political. Great. Bert, how do you think that the court should resolve the case? I think they should adopt what I would call an objective test. I think they ought to say that um, has the government done something that has the effect uh, of um, um, essentially making it impossible to engage in collective action, whether you think about it as assembly or you think about it as uh, association. And I don't care what the government was thinking at the time that they did it. What I care is what comes out the other end of the government's gun. If what comes out the other end of the government's gun um, is a prohibition on engaging in collective activity, that's what the Supreme Court should be engaged, or should be should be prohibiting. Wonderful. Um, well, let's uh, speculate about some future association and petition cases. There's an interesting controversy going on right now at Harvard uh, College, where the the dean of the college is pressuring the all-male final clubs to accept women, and at one point was threatening to expel students who joined the clubs. Um, if Harvard were a public uh, university, uh, John, might might that implicate the assembly clause? I think so. And so here, the, the key move is the one that you just made, which is to specify the public nature. So I do think that private institutions, even within these nested organizations, have to have the autonomy to set the rules that they want and, and to regulate the groups within their own organizations. But if we're talking a public space, and we could generalize this to a fraternity or sorority setting as well, uh, that this does invoke associational and assembly questions. Uh, and inevitably, the other side of that coin is the exclusionary and discriminatory space that one opens up. And so the flip side of the right to associate is the right to exclude, as the court has said before, and that involves costs. And so uh, to the question of whether this is a a claim that we ought to be considering under these kinds of rights, I think absolutely how that comes out under a First Amendment analysis there, I think we need to uh, do a serious weighing of the of the costs and benefits under something like a strict scrutiny analysis. And, and I think there may be cases when even in those settings, the power imbalances or the government interests could uh, could negate the right. But we, we, we have to make the first step of strengthening and recovering the right that's no longer there in, in, in functional form. Great. Uh, Bert, uh, do you agree or disagree about the ability of, uh, of uh, private clubs at a public university to exclude uh, people on the basis of gender, and, and how does the Boy Scouts and Dale case uh, fit in where the court held that the First Amendment uh, protects the Boy Scouts' right to exclude an openly gay scout leader? Yeah, well, I'm not sure what we, what we mean. I think we have to be very careful when we define what we're talking about as public university. Uh, as I understand it, this is something arising at Harvard, right? Yes, but I'm, I'm trying to make it simpler by imagining it's uh, the University of Massachusetts or something like that. Because uh, I, think it, I think it's important when we, when, we, when we talk about this that um, while the values of the First Amendment, the values of speech and association and assembly um, um, are hugely important in uh, private academic uh, education, um, uh, I would not want um, the Constitution or some way of, 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 of disguising the Constitution. I wouldn't want that to be enforceable as a matter of law on private um, 
um, private educational institutions. Perhaps they could be regulated by statute, and they are in many ways. But I wouldn't want to see them regulated by the Constitution itself, because I think we then lose the capacity for some uh, a good deal of autonomous behavior uh, in the private sector that, uh, that I, I, I don't think should be, should be constitutionalized. But if we think about this as the University of California or the University of Massachusetts, um, um, if it comes up, to, if it comes up to the Supreme Court, based on the way the Supreme Court decided um, a case a couple of years ago out of the University of California, I think they're going to say that the public college has the power to insist that all institutions recognized by the college as official college institutions have to be open to all members. Um, as I recall, the case out of California was a case involving a. Uh, um, a group that didn't um, want to allow gay members. It was a, 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 a religiously um, organized group that didn't want to allow gay members to come in. And the, um, uh, the college said, no, you, you must, uh, this is a, a, has to be open to every member of the campus. The case went up to the Supreme Court. It was bitterly, a bit of dispute. But the court ruled that they had to allow everybody to join. Now, whether that case is right or wrong, my assumption is that that's the way this case would be resolved. Um, um, uh, I'm afraid, frankly, that there's no right answer in these cases. I, I would love to find ways of resolving these cases short of forcing the Supreme Court uh, to make law that says that um, um, uh, you can have no exclusionary clubs or that you can have all exclusionary clubs. I have a hunch that this is an area that would benefit from a little, um, uh, a little non-rationality, a little, a little um, space uh, for people to behave intuitively instead of legally. But I'm not sure how to create it. Um, uh, John, Bert just mentioned a California case. I think it was Christian Legal Society against Martinez from 2010. The court rejected the claim of a Christian student group that a law school violated its associational rights by requiring it to accept gay students as a condition of receiving recognition and funding. Do you think that that case was rightly or wrongly decided? Yeah, so I think I think Bert's right. If the, if the claim today came up under that case, there's a good chance the court ruled the same way. But to your question, I think the case was clearly wrongly decided. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, the, the facts weren't just about a gay student, but it was really a group that said, no non-Christian students that applied across the board, and 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 some of the scenarios were, uh, you know, if you're a, if you're a Jewish student, you can't join the Christian club, and these kinds of things. And so it applied more broadly. But to me, the the core reason the case is wrong is that the student organization forum that formed the the key part of the factual analysis is is quite akin to a public forum. The nature when we think of student groups on public university campuses. The nature of the forum is to invite all ideas to let a thousand flowers bloom, to let students decide what they want. There's not official sponsorship of those groups that reflect the endorsement of the university. It's, it's a forum for students of all places at the university to engage uh, with lots of ideas and ideologies. And when we start regulating the boundaries of those spaces, just as when we start to regulate the public forum, we quickly come into problems with the First Amendment. So to me, the, the case framed in the public forum nature that it was is deeply problematic. And, and then the facts of that case and the analysis itself points to why I think we're missing the assembly and association claims in these sorts of scenarios. So the court in Martinez just dismissed the association claim and said we're going to focus solely on speech. It said that association is purely derivative or 
are redundant of the speech right at issue. And, and this, to me, is a, is a clear case that shows why that's, that's not right. Um, Bert? Uh, Frankly, guys, it was the California case. Um, it was my difficulty in, in, in deciding in my own mind how I thought the California case that came out should come out that made me think that maybe we should find ways of not deciding these cases for a while, because I'm just not sure. Um, uh, the, uh, John is right that public forum is the key to it. The question is, what is the public forum? Um, is the entire university a public forum, in which case uh, there's room then for lots of groups um, that have um, a highly uh, restricted membership to be part of the public forum and to speak out in the larger public forum. What the University of California thought, apparently, and um, I think argued, was that every group on the campus is a public forum. Um, and that since every group on the campus is a public forum, it has to be open to everybody on the campus. Now, that then, that raises really questions, great, very important questions of political theory about uh, how you build a vibrant um, um, uh, uh, culture of dissent and discussion. Do you build it by insisting that every component be open to everybody, or do you build it by saying that you want to have a larger entity um, reflect the, the debate, but that every component within it doesn't necessarily have to do it? And I have no idea what the right answer to that is. Uh, John, the court has in recent years uh, been returning to the text and original understanding of various constitutional provisions from the Fourth Amendment to the Confrontation Clause. Um, and yet, uh, according to your account, uh, the rights of assembly have really dropped out of their preferred position. You note that uh, in the uh, around the time of World War I, they were listed as among the original four freedoms, along with speech, press, and religion. Assembly was the fourth. But when President Roosevelt switched to a different grouping of four freedoms, he uh, th the assembly clause uh, dropped out. Um, do you imagine that it might be restored to its uh, preferred position? And do you think that the Supreme Court might, in fact, resurrect the assembly clause in the way that you think it should be interpreted? Well, that's certainly a hope. And you're right to point out some some related cases uh, in other portions of the Bill of Rights that do suggest the court is returning to long-ignored provisions in the Bill of Rights, which gives me some optimism here. I, I thought the best moment for this might have been in the Hosanna-Tabor case a few years ago that involved the ministerial exception. And in that case, the government was arguing that uh, rather than recognize this ministerial exception, a combination of the free exercise and establishment clauses, that the court should instead rely solely on the right of expressive association to protect the church in this circumstance. And the court didn't buy that argument. In fact, in the 9-0 decision, it, it endorsed the ministerial exception. One of the reasons that I think that the court couldn't go with expressive association is that the doctrine revealed its limits uh, under the current evolution of that doctrine, not just in the Bale case, but in the J.C.'s case and other cases. We don't have a lot of teeth to what expressive association is and what it protects. And so the combination of a recognition of the limits of this doctrine, uh, together with the court's apparent willingness to look back to other resources that have been ignored, gives me some hope that we might see a, a revisiting of the assembly clause. Bert, if the court does resurrect the assembly clause, uh, are there areas where civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives might diverge, perhaps over the kind of, uh, you know, questions about the rights of clubs to exclude 
uh, people oh, on the basis no of race? I mean, the, um, uh, both, both, both assembly and association, because as John correctly points out, these are collective uh, uh, entities, and every collective entity has two sides. Uh, it has the inclusionary side, where people are uh, able to be part of it and gather the strength and support that you can get by, uh, by working uh, with others. And then there's the exclusionary of the fact that people are not allowed, some people are not allowed to come in. So the very existence of assembly and association is a two-edged sword. Um, um, and the, uh, um, the, uh, how to navigate the question of when someone must be allowed to bust his way into an association that doesn't want him um, uh, in order to allow the outside person to exercise his freedom of association or his freedom of assembly um, at the expense of the inside people who don't want to have him do it, or when you allow the inside person not to allow the outside person to come in, that is an extraordinarily difficult issue with which the Supreme Court has grappled without actually I think, uh, carefully and systematically saying it was doing it. It's grappled with it since the old white primary cases, uh, where white voters would get together and say, no black can vote in our private group. We're going to get together and decide who gets to vote in the primary, and we'll throw all of our votes to one particular candidate, but no black person can participate in that process. Um, that's Terry versus Adams, way back in the, in the 1950s. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, you've got to let the black voters bust their way in so that they can participate in what it was essentially a private group of people deciding how they were going to cast their ballots in the election. Um, ever since then, we've had the dilemma um, whether the inside people or the outside people should be the uh, primary beneficiaries of, of the doctrine. And frankly, um, apart from John's wonderful book, well, we don't have a lot of good, serious theoretical thinking on that. And my hope is that before the court finally shuts down the doctrine, one way or the other, um, we get a little bit more percolation within the intellectual community about how these decisions should be ultimately resolved. Wonderful. Well, it is time, gentlemen, for closing arguments in this fascinating discussion. Uh, John, I will begin with you. Why are the assembly and petition clauses important, and how should they be interpreted? Uh, I think the, maybe the, one of the most important points to mention about both assembly and petition is that they, they empower private citizens individually, but as importantly collectively, to come together to create alternative spaces and meetings from the government, to create opportunities for dissent, and the pursuit of different and new ideas. And this is why I think at the end of the day, this experiment that Bert and I have done is so interesting, because even with different ideological interests and ideas, uh, we can both agree that we want the space to pursue those apart from government interference, uh, partly because we don't know who's going to be in control, and and that's an important question. So that's uh, that's where I see the core of those rights being. Thank you so much for that, John. And Bert, why do you think that the assembly and petition clauses are important, and how should they be interpreted? I think they're enormously important because they are a third of the First Amendment. And as John correctly points out, the court, and you as well, the court in recent years, has begun to take text a little more seriously. They've begun to say that the text of the Constitution uh, provides more than just a kind of opening. It actually provides the source of decision. 
but it's very important that if they adopt text as an important way of doing that, they don't adopt what I call a kind of atomized text, where they will pull a clause or a couple of words out of the, text, of the Constitution and read them as though that is the real guidance. If text is going to be where they go, then it has to be contextual text. It has to be all 45 words. It has to be all six clauses. And it has to be, they have to be engaged in the development um, of a First Amendment that respects the fact that there are six textual and a seventh non-textual idea and how they all work together to finally help us build the city on the hill that the founders wanted to establish. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Bert Newborn and John Anazu, for this wonderful discussion, which recapitulates and amplifies your great uh, collaboration on the interactive Constitution. And I want all of our listeners to check that out at constitutioncenter.org. Bert, John, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Good to be with you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.